All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Vidyut Navre, Director of AI and Machine Learning at PayPal. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Vidyut, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. Happy to be here. Big fan of your show. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and learning a bit more about what you're up to, both from the perspective of the hat you wear leading applied ML and AI at PayPal, but also some of the work you're doing supporting ML ops and the machine learning platform teams there. But before we jump into all that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. So I joined PayPal three years ago and I was Before that, I used to work in the autonomous driving area. I used to work uh, at a company called Neo, where my team was working on building kind of very interesting anomaly detection algorithms for catching crazy driving scenarios out there in the field. Before that, I used to work at Qualcomm, where I led several interesting projects in modem design, sensor system design, and so on. That's where I started getting my hands and feet wet with AIML, if you will. For the past three years, I've been at PayPal, where I'm leading, as you said, the AI R&D function, applied AI R&D function. And in addition, of late, I've also started leading some of our MLOps efforts in this area. So really, really interested in sharing what we've found in our journey so far. Awesome. Awesome. Just thinking about some of the places you've been on your personal journey, you kind of started out in these very edge scenarios, hardware-driven scenarios. And I'm imagining that PayPal is not like that at all. I'd love to hear you kind of compare and contrast some of your prior experiences to what you see now in PayPal. Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, uh, you know, as you rightly pointed out, when I was at Qualcomm, it's a very different vertical, very different space. And the kinds of problems that you encounter there, you know, have more to do with having very, very limited access to compute, limited access to memory, you know, so so the focus there entirely is on how do you kind of build the most energy efficient mm-hmm. algorithms from an AIML perspective versus when you move into a company like PayPal, which is primarily kind of like a cloud-based platform, it's a very different situation altogether. I mean, you're no longer strictly limited by the amount of compute memory resources you have, it becomes a slightly different uh, environment where you are trying to, you know, bring AIML to production. So, you know, just as an example, right, like when at Qualcomm, when we were building various algorithms in the sensor area, right? So this is where we are trying to use Excels and gyros to figure out whether what what kind of activity a person is engaged with, uh, with sensors. You know, we have a very, very small power budget, energy budget to work with. So we really, really have to focus on making our algorithms very, very efficient. In PayPal, it's kind of like a different, I think here it's more about how do we make sure that we are deploying the algorithm to solve, to improve performance, Uh, but cost is a consideration, but it's not the most important thing, right? So it's an interesting set of experiences I've had. And then autonomous driving, kind of that area falls somewhere in the middle of both of this, because, you know, on the one hand, you're still doing all of your inferencing on the edge because ultimately all your computer vision processing has to happen on the car. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it is energy constraint because you have to do all of that in you know, a battery constrained environment. But on the flip side, the performance that you need, the bar that you need is very high. And also the complexity is extremely high right? because you're processing very, very high bitrate video streams from multiple cameras concurrently, right? So the amount of 
compute you need to solve those problems is much higher than what I was dealing with when I was at Qualcomm, for example. So it's just like each area has had its own difficulties and challenges to deal with, but it's also made me aware of, of very, very interesting, I would say, perspectives on solving the same problem. Yeah. You know, and I think about, again, financial services or PayPal in particular, fraud is probably the first thing that, you know, jumps to mind for me and for other folks. What are some of the other use cases that kind of fall in your portfolio and that are important at PayPal? Yeah, it's a good segue into kind of what overall data science at PayPal looks like. Before going there, uh, maybe I'll just spend a few minutes talking a little bit about PayPal, right? Like what we do, you know, you know where we are at in terms of scale and so on. So as you know, PayPal is probably one of the most widely recognized payment services company. We have at last count, maybe around 395 or so million customers, maybe another 30 to 35 million merchants on the platform. So Basically, what we enable is this two-sided network where we have, on the one hand, you know, all these customers who can who can use PayPal products to move money, to manage money. Uh, we also offer credit services uh, to customers, for example. And then on the merchant side of the house, uh, we have uh, you know our checkout product. We have several other. We have a whole uh, laundry of products, right? Where we enable our merchants to improve their own metrics, their own business metrics. We also help them with risk and fraud management, for example. And last but not least, we also provide merchants with credit, right? So as and when they need it. Also, not, not to forget, it's probably not widely known probably to your audience, but Venmo, Zoom, they are also actually PayPal products. Are very, very popular, for example, Venmo with Gen Z and... Zoom for cross-border. You know, Zoom is cross-border remittances, right? Like super popular. Zoom with an X, not Zoom with a Z. Zoom with an X, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and several more, right? Braintree. For example, which is a payment gateway solution we offered. Recurring payments. Yeah, which not just recurring payment, but it, basically it's a payment uh, so, you know, gateway for merchants, right? Okay. Similar to st what Stripe offers to merchants. Anyway, so I think the first thing to understand is PayPal is a very diverse ecosystem with a lot of different services and products. Mm -hmm. And you know, each one of them have their own, I would say, flavor of AI ML embedded within them. Uh, but again, uh, just zooming out, if, you, if I were to broadly categorize all of the AI ML I think driven products, I think the number one would be definitely fraud prevention. That is the area where we have the most advanced, most complex AI systems uh, in use and deployed. After that, there is credit. Several of our credit, like basically our credit product also is powered by AIML, especially in the underwriting process, in the marketing of uh, those kinds of products to prospective customers or merchants. Then there is things like sales and marketing. You know, when we are trying to uh, essentially cross-sell or upsell our existing products to an existing customer or merchant, uh, we will typically try to use ML to identify those customers who are most likely to, you know, basically propensity models, which, which will help our, our business teams to identify the best set of next customers to target on the both sales and marketing side. There's also customer service, right? So we, at the, in our, PayPal is, is a big company, right? And many people reach out to us whenever they have some issue with, with a transaction that didn't go through or a transaction that was put on hold or st stuff like that. So people contact us a lot of the time. We actually use NLP BERT-like models uh, in many of these use cases to identify, for example, in a chat context, the intent with which potentially a customer is calling us or contacting us. And then there is compliance. So again, this is where the regulatory side uh, comes into the picture. So 
we are expected to catch any kind of illegal activity on the platform things like money laundering or drug trafficking and so on. like there are all these kinds of use cases that we are supposed to catch and flag to regulatory bodies so we again use uh, aiml there as well because ultimately uh, if you if you map all of some of these problems they all become aiml problems at some level and again this is just uh, i would say the probably the top 5 or 6 use cases but there is many many i would say there's there's again kind of like a, a longish tail of other areas within paypal where there's a lot of exploration going on around where aiml can be used to solve a certain business problem and so on so mm-hmm. hopefully that gives you a full view of, of what aiml looks like at paypal today no that does and now if you could then kind of use that as a segue to map to your applied R&D portfolio when you think about the projects and investments you're making there and what you think is most promising for the the sets of problems that you have in terms of uh, approaches. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a great question. I'll probably provide my perspective on how I look overall at kind of the area of R&D wearing the PayPal directory and R&D hat, right? So for me, like the overall AIML landscape, like I, I break it into four categories. Uh, there's kind of like the hardware compute layer where I feel there's a lot of innovation happening. Uh, then there's the core algorithmic layer, which is kind of the focus of most of the academia and the Facebooks and Googles of the world. And finally, there's the application layer, right? Where a customer is interacting with a product and uh, he, he gets some experience driven by AI, right? So each of these areas, I feel there's a lot of innovation happening. And so my role as an R&D lead... And did you say four? Yeah, sorry. Fourth one is tools, frameworks, and platforms, right? So I... Got it. I thought you were going there, but just yeah, to confirm. Yeah, I missed it. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for catching it. Um, so the tools, frameworks, and platforms are, you know, this is where I, I look at the overall ecosystem, right? And this is where, for example, MLOps enters the picture, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we make sure that not just each cog in this wheel is doing well, but as a whole, how does everything kind of work well together in the most efficient manner, right? So MLOps, uh, things like interoperability platforms, because, you know, there is a, you know, there are all these different machine learning frameworks. There's TensorFlow, there's PyTorch. Now, how do we actually... You have tools like Onyx that tie them together. Onyx, yeah. How do we... Yeah, so Onyx is, for example, something that we are investigating uh, for our use cases. So now let me kind of like drive deeper into, into three main, like I would say, areas of, of R&D, right? The first is the kind of hardware compute layer. Here, I think uh, of two primary initiatives where uh, we have already made some investments and uh, we're really, really hopeful about what where this is going to go. The first one is this whole idea of federated learning and how do we essentially benefit from being able to offload some of our inferencing and hopefully in the future training workloads right, directly to the customer or merchant uh, devices. So we have some ongoing work in this area where we feel it's the right time. It's it's going to be very important from a cost management perspective, also from a privacy and regulatory perspective, that the closer we move the compute and the lesser we move data to our data centers, the better it is for everybody in the ecosystem. The second one is around how, again, this is something that we are extremely positive about, which is how do we essentially make sure that we use 
the data that we use, right? Fundamentally, the data layer at the compute layer in the most efficient manner. And for example, this could be things like, how do we, for example, store data at 16-bit resolution? Do we really need to store data at 32-bit resolution? Mm -hmm. Do we really need to do compute at 32-bit? Can we do it at 16-bit? Because again, the impact that this has on the overall cost of building an AI ML solution, uh, and especially for a company like PayPal, where we have such humongous amounts of data to deal with, right? So, so we are investing in this area as well. Like how do we optimize our compute layer? How do we optimize our data layer? And then, so those two, I think are the kind of, I would say primary two things we are focusing on. And that hardware silo. Yeah, the hardware silo, we have, for example, done some pilots in the quantum computing area. We have done, we're also looking at, for example, in the area of graph compute, right? What is the best possible hardware layer for graph? Because as you know, graph computing, I think the underlying hardware ecosystem today is not optimized for graph Mm -hmm. because of the fact that the memory access patterns when you're basically trying to do graph compute are not well suited to today's, I would say, computer architecture. So in this particular instance, for example, we are working with some external partners trying trying to understand where this might go. But there's several different lines of things at the hardware acceleration layer that we're also considering. So kind of in this, the context of, of hardware, you're looking at federated learning. I'm curious, when you think about federated learning, are most of your efforts focused on what I think of as kind of the algorithmic elements of federated learning, like differential privacy and privacy preserving machine learning, or more like deployment challenges, logistical challenges of just getting models, model slash data to and from devices and coordinating all of that distributed training, things like that. Yeah, so it's a journey for us, Sam. And federated learning has many components, pieces, some of them, as you said, more AI, ML, algorithmic in nature, some of them more engineering and infrastructure oriented. Uh, So in in terms of our journey right now, we are focusing on first, it's kind of like crawl first, then walk, then run, right? So the first goal is start to actually do inferencing of some models on the device. Gradually, as in parallel, of course, as you said, it just doesn't stop there. We have to start thinking about differential privacy. Can we, how do we make our models differentially private? That's one angle to it. Federated learning where the full ambit of federated learning actually is also eventually doing training on device. But I think that's a bit far out from our current, Mm -hmm. from where we are right now. Uh, But certainly things, there are opportunities here uh, to do that. I would just say that that's where we are at basically in this particular area. Got it. And then you mentioned a couple of the kind of accelerated hardware acceleration opportunities that are out there. Is there anything in particular that you're finding exciting or or interesting among the things that you've been looking at? I would say there are definitely interesting things, but I feel they're a bit like from an overall technology maturity standpoint, I think (laughs) they're not quite there for prime time. For example, uh, our, our recent work on quantum computing let me just share some context, right? We uh, One of the steps in basically the AML workflow is feature engineering. And one of the sub-steps there is feature selection, right? So let's say you have a catalog of features and you're trying to find the best possible subset of features for a given ML problem. That problem is fundamentally a, a combinatorial optimization problem with, with the complexity of the number of features that we have. Today, we use greedy approaches, traditional classical greedy approaches. So one of the POCs we did on quantum was, and this was with with some external vendors, 
uh, like IBM and D-Wave in this space. And what we found is uh, that we didn't get exactly very, very conclusive results that demonstrated that, you know, the feature selection that you can get with kind of like today's quantum computers can actually outdo classical approaches yet. Yeah. Right. So that was, a, you know, like a sobering, I guess, a revelation for us. And, you know, we feel, okay, so there is, uh, there's a few more years for this particular area to evolve, right? I think I, th- that's a specific case in point, but I feel that's a kind of broader industry trend. Like I know there's a lot of startups right now in overall the hardware acceleration space. Companies are building custom silicon mm-hmm. to accelerate AI workloads, either for training or inference. But we, we don't yet feel the need to go there yet. Yeah. But maybe in the future. So that's probably the... I would say in terms of overall hardware space, that's probably the closest to, from a technology maturity standpoint, custom silicon for AI workloads. But I think that probably is not what we are the most interested in right now. And I've got to imagine if you're running, if you're a significant user of cloud computing, you also are to some degree banking on the cloud providers' investments in custom silicon decreasing your costs and providing better performance so maybe it's not the thing that you need to spend your efforts were you know focused on spot on again absolutely right i think especially for quantum right like uh, again as a case in point i think with quantum it's a kind of steep learning curve to understand how quantum computing works mm-hmm. we actually went ahead a little bit and uh, because it's a long lead time activity we decided to do some work by ourselves but as you said maybe in a few years time quantum computing and all these Graph, I mean, say graph and and other hardware acceleration silicon might all be abstracted away by cloud providers, and yeah. we don't, we kind of don't have to worry about all of the early technology maturity issues that otherwise that you face, right? Typically, when when you go down to the hardware layer. Yeah. So absolutely, yeah. What was that second area that you mentioned? Was that algorithms? Yeah, algorithms. Yeah. So in the algorithms bucket, Sam, I think we have, as you can imagine, this is kind of the sets of things that we are doing here are should be very familiar to your audience. Things around representation learning, sequence to label learning, uh, transformers, you know, how do we use these in our most complex use cases? So this is one area of focus for my team. Mm-hmm. Another, like I would say increasing area of focus for the team is, you know, around causal ML, causal inference. I think this is, there are two primary use cases here. One is many problems that uh, we encounter typically in the marketing area. They are more causal in nature where you're trying to influence behavior of customers and merchants mm-hmm. uh, through, by taking certain actions. So we believe that instead of looking at these problems as predictive problems, they are much better formulated as treatment and effect kind of problems, right? So we're doing some early research here, partnering with some teams to figure out if there is an improvement in performance by, by changing our approach to those problems. The other interesting application of causal ML is uh, in what we believe is essentially identifying causal features, right? In Going back to that feature selection problem, right? A lot of today's feature selection problems fundamentally are r- rooted in correlation, right? You're trying to understand how features are correlated with labels Mm-hmm. But I think with causal ML, there are approaches which have actually been shown where you can try to learn more causative features for why a certain thing might be happening, which in turn helps with making our model more robust, right? Because yeah. to our earlier discussion that we were having around, you know, the fact that, you know, data distribution is drifting and, you know, as the data distribution is drifting, 
So it's the model score, right? But if we can fundamentally identify features which are causal in nature, we expect the model's output to be more robust to this kind of noise, right? So this is another area where, where we feel causal ML could play a big role and it should help, uh, for example, with keeping you know, our performance of our model stable over longer periods of time than, than it is today, for example. Are there any references you can point us to on the causal features? Yeah, there is some prior work done by Professor Susan Athi at Stanford, who actually we, we had done a, a pilot with her team back in 2020 on this area. Again, that was one single pilot with one single use case. So, so we are continuing to explore other areas mm -hmm. and other use cases. The basic idea is how do you identify causal features yeah. using some causal ML techniques? You didn't mention it, but I imagine under algorithms, you're looking at various graph machine learning techniques as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are looking at graph machine learning. It's a big area of research for us. This is where we are using GCNs to learn embeddings for several kinds of use cases like collusion detection. One form of fraud is collusion where the buyer and the seller collude uh, to you know, essentially game the system. So in these kinds of use cases, uh, we have found that GCN-based embeddings can actually really help uh, improve the performance to catch this kind of fraud. But you know, going beyond that, right, there is graph is such a rich representation of our user interaction data. And couple that with the fact that graph ML itself is evolving so rapidly right now in the academia. There's so many you know great papers and research is coming out in this area that it's a continuous area of exploration for us. How do we- It's evolving really quickly. It's evolving really quickly. So we are exploring it in several, several contexts, be it, you know, fraud detection. We can also, you know, another uh, use case that comes to mind is compliance, as I said, like, because there are very, very, when you look at how uh, money laundering occurs on a graph, yeah, it is almost, you will immediately see how, how you can actually use graphs to catch it, right? Right, right. But uh, the problem with, with graph, which I was alluding to earlier, is, is the scale of the graph mm. that we have at PayPal. We have like you know, millions of customers, like billions of transactions happening every year. So to model all of that, to keep that graph up to date, to be able to train models on this kind of evolving graph and so on, it's, it's, it's a very challenging problem. So that's, that's one part of it. And then at the algorithmic layer graph also as I, as I keep saying, a lot of interesting work happening in this area. So we are, we are doing our own pilots in this area. And just maybe taking a step back, do you think about kind of applied R&D in the context of algorithms as taking the stuff that the Stanfords and Googles and Facebooks are doing from a, a research and you know academic publishing perspective and trying to understand how they fit into your problem domains? Or are you also doing academic style research into the problems that interest you? Yeah, I think it's more of the former in the sense uh, we are an applied R&D group. So we are not focused on kind of fundamental research, I would call it. Our goal is not to, let's say, come up with novel problems and you know, publish yeah. them to conferences and journals. It's, it's definitely an applied R&D function. To rephrase your question, like how do we kind of groom our backlog? Right? How do we decide what to work on and what not to work on? It's a combination of things. I think we're definitely monitoring what the Googles and the Facebooks are doing. We are also monitoring conferences, like top-tier conferences like ICML, ICLR, and so on. Some of the differences that we see from when you look at everything from an academia lens versus a you know like a applied R&D lens is 
for example, number one, like a lot of AIML research is focused on NLP, CV, uh, you know, unstructured kind of, I would say, data, versus R is focused on, I would say, some portion of it structured, some portion of it unstructured. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is, you know, financial services space, uh, we have our own unique, uh, I would say, attributes to our data sets, which are not like typically found in, in kind of academic conferences. Right? So one of the key things that me and my team do is really connecting those dots, right? So you, you will see a lot of things that show up in CV or in NLP land, but the key is like to identify how do you map, you know, let's say the problem and the solution to our domain, right? And and to see if there is some potential, right? Yeah. It sounds very easy to say, but it's actually very hard to do in practice, right? But I think this is this is really the key, uh, I would say, role that we play in addition to running the pilots and and doing the R&D itself. I think the key part is ideating and understanding what trends are happening in these related but separate domains and how do we kind of like map it to our domain, right? That is the real secret sauce, I think, yeah. to our group and what we do. Got it, got it. So the, the third area? Yeah, the third area is kind of more on the applications side, as I mentioned. So this is uh, primarily, this is where I think, uh, you know, most of our focus area here is on the responsible AI side, things around explainability, fairness, privacy, adversarial learning. How do we essentially look at uh, these problems and uh, solve them for our customers, uh, basically ultimately for our customers, but also make sure that we are complying with regulations and laws. And we have a pretty, I think in the last year or two, we've uh, actually taken steps at PayPal to make sure that we, you know, we really are building our models in a, in a very responsible manner. We have governance and I would say processes in place to make sure that, you know, as we build models, we are paying close attention to how do we make them explainable? How do we ascertain that they are fair? In some areas, for example, we are already doing it because it's required by law, but we are also now starting to think about all the new areas where we need to start paying attention to all of these things. I already mentioned a little bit about privacy. And then finally, on the security side, we are starting to really look at adversarial learning as, you know, how do we, for example, in, in a fraud detection context, how do we use adversarial learning to make our models even more robust? Ultimately, I think our customers interact with us through the application layer. And so we really need to make sure that everything that we are doing as a customer sees it is done in a responsible manner, which complies with law and so on. This is an area that my team is heavily invested in. I would say that was that would probably be the number one. On the the second area here is probably more around the conversational AI side, where uh, we want to build, for example, chatbots, which you know, which which basically delight our customers in terms of giving them uh, you know a very good experience. And so here there is some R and D happening within my team where we are trying to look at. How do we use uh, techniques from reinforcement learning to, to essentially train a chatbot with all the previous chat logs that we have of our customers with our agents, for example, right? So that's a very interesting area uh, of research for us as well. Awesome. And the fourth area was around tools and MLOps platform technologies, that exactly, kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. So I think that actually is the glue that eventually try, ties all these three layers mm-hmm. on the top. So definitely MLOps, uh, interoperability platforms, uh, you know, how do we make sure that both on the deployment side as well as on the training side, we have 
an ecosystem that you can train in any framework of your choice, deploy uh, on any kind of device, uh, be it uh, like a phone or a, or, a, or a browser. So these kinds of things are also, we have various pilots ongoing in this area as well. And then the big one is MLOps, of course, which we've been on our own journey, I guess. But this is basically the, the place where we, we try to automate as many of the steps involved in model uh, development and delivery to the extent possible, right? Like that's the ultimate goal. This helps, as you said, with you know making our development cycles shorter and basically increasing deployment velocity, right? So this this is the primary objective uh, of the MLOps area. And is MLOps, from your perspective, is is it still applied R and D into MLOps? Meaning, looking at kind of the you know, how do you characterize the time horizon? You know, hey, what are we going to be doing in MLOps three to five years from now? And then exploring those things and transitioning them to other internal teams that are focused on one to three years or that MLOps component, like you have all this kind of forward-looking stuff and you're also responsible for the platform that your teams use today in production. It's a great question. I think I would say it's a combination of both. Okay. I think there is some part of that team's bandwidth uh, that goes into more forward-looking R&D type of stuff. So connecting back, for example, to our first conversation on uh, unsupervised versus semi-supervised right approaches to yeah. for fraud detection. So that team, uh, for example, will look into something like that because ultimately it's, it's a way for us to automate the process of a model refresh by looking at a technique like semi-supervised learning, right? Mm-hmm. That's the R&D side. But as you can imagine, this is also a very kind of product and execution heavy function. So uh, I would say 50% of the bandwidth goes in kind of like the day-to-day building of the pipelines, onboarding, you know, new models and, and, and customers onto the MLOps rails and so on. But, and actually this was also, by the way, the reason why this function was synergized with the R&D group, because we, we already see that there is plenty of synergy in terms of the fact that some of the work happening in this group is R&D in nature. And uh, so it just made a lot of sense for me to actually basically look at both the R&D side of the house as well as the MLOps R&D side of the house so that we can even synergize more. Well, I feel like we need a whole separate conversation just to dig into the details around your platform and tooling choices and the way you think about automating the machine learning workflow. I know. We didn't (laughs) didn't even get to it. (laughs) We didn't even get to it. That said, uh, it has been wonderful you know, exploring the way you're thinking about applied research and development at PayPal and some of the use cases that you're looking at and the things that you're excited about. Even there, it'd be great to go into a lot more detail. So we'll ha- we'll have to make sure to stay in touch and have some follow-on conversations. Thank you, Sam. It was great to be on the show. Thank you, Vidyu. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.